Hey, Rituka, it's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, you've had a really interesting career. Could you walk me through some of the choices that you've made? Absolutely. So um, I am the CEO of a social enterprise called Swaniti. About seven years ago, I was still at the World Bank um, and I decided that the World Bank was great, but I wanted to do something more on the ground. So I left the World Bank and decided to start Swaniti. And it's been a really interesting journey working with parliamentarians and the government and supporting them on technical assistance and working in the public policy fa- uh, field. So it's it's been a good decision. Um, it's definitely been a huge learning curve. I think, you know, when you're a social entrepreneur, you get to know the ups and the downs. When you're a social entrepreneur in the public policy space, you certainly get to know the ups and the downs of how the government works, how do you raise capital, how do you create sustainable government partnerships, and most importantly, how do you bring talent on board? And what does Swaniti mean? How Tell me, walk me through the origins of this movement, social enterprise. Sure. So um, we started, I started Swaniti, uh, the idea came when I was a graduate school student. Essentially, that was about nine years ago, yeah getting old but that was about nine years ago and uh, I was still a grad student at the Kennedy School and basically we started thinking we had the the 2009 election at that point in time and there was this whole movement about how do you get young people to work with parliamentarians and given that parliamentarians have so much to do with constituency development how do you get that talent going And so the way that the idea conceptualized and it started was as graduate school students, you're looking for internships. So can we place talented people as interns, graduate school students as interns to work with MPs in the constituency? And so when we did that, we noticed there was a huge demand for this. Um, So the first few times we had a few um, MBA students from Harvard go in and work in Hazari Bagh to set up a call center. And within three months, not only were they able to set up a call center, but we could see the on-ground impact. So from there, the idea kind of conceptualized that there is a need to have young people work in the policy space with parliamentarians and elected officials. So you tried it out while you were an MPP student at the Kennedy School? Yes. Or, And you know, I mean, the first time the idea came to you, who did you run it past? Or did you just immediately go on to the implementation or piloting phase? So we actually kind of, so it was a bunch of, uh, when I say we, it was a bunch of graduate school students and we were kind of sitting down and discussing what the possibilities were. And so it just seemed like a really promising idea. It seemed like the the investment of time was limited to be able to test it out and see. So rather than run it past, we kind of jumped in headfirst to see what works. Yeah. And uh, how was the response like? You said that the call center in Hazari Bagh was operational pretty soon. Who were some of the initial supporters or mentors who encouraged you towards this idea? And who were some of those folks who cautioned you against such a challenging problem? Absolutely. So I think, you know, when it came to people who kind of embraced this idea, um, in fact, the, one of our first people we worked with was Jan Sinha, who's now uh, MP. He was also the Minister of State for Finance. At that point, he was in Boston. And he really kind of was kind enough to sit down and help shape the idea in terms of saying that you need to embed someone there. You need to have a problem statement that you're sp- solving instead of just having someone do everything. So having a mentor like him and having someone who kind of initially gave feedback on such critical pieces was just very helpful. Um, we had a bunch of professors 
teachers who were actually really helpful and being in that university ecosystem really helped. So one of our professors was Kasuri Rangan, who really kind of helped us think through, okay, what would a social enterprise look like? What are the pros and cons of nonprofits versus for profits? So having those conversations early on in that environment was very helpful. There weren't as many deterrents. I think the question was much more, this is a great idea in concept. It's a lot of how you'll execute it, which will matter. Right. Um, so this was in second year? Yeah, we were second year students. Yes. So at that time, you would be considering employment as well. So how do, what were the career discussions going on? Uh, were you considering a job? Were you considering doing this full time? Walk us through. Yeah, so I think uh, the... Uh, since I was someone who went straight from undergrad to grad school, um, the job piece of it was always important. So I always wanted to get some work experience um, before doing anything of my own. And honestly, I think, you know, the decision to start something was fairly organic. It wasn't like, you know, I will do I will work at the World Bank for two years and then start an, an entrepreneurial venture. It was it kind of took a natural transition where after two years, I just kind of wanted to do something, you know, explored on something that was there but coming back to what you asked in terms of the the op option of continuing this it was kind of like a bug that bites you once and then you keep thinking about it and you keep scratching that itch mm -hmm. and that itch kept coming back it yeah. was it was just very exciting to be able to see firsthand what you can do in a place like Jharkhand um, to me particularly because um, having spent most of my life outside of India having that connect was just very powerful where did you grow up so I grew up till I was about eight. I grew up in, in Delhi and then I grew up in the US. I see. So here you decided to go to the World Bank, but this idea stayed with you. It did. In those two years while you were at the World Bank, um, did you try and do micro pilots or a little bit of hypothesis testing? Absolutely. So uh, what I did was actually do like a micro pilot on myself mm -hmm. where I uh, reached out to MPs at that point in time and essentially talked to them about, uh, you know, what is it that you require? What kind of support do you need? And just kind of have those conversations. And then after during that time, what I also did was work with one of the parliamentarians who needed support in his constituency mm -hmm. to get laptops and computers in schools. So one of the problem statements he said was, look, government schools still are not that you know great at technology. So can you help me bring in laptops and computers to schools considering most of these children haven't even seen laptop? And this was like 40 minutes outside of Calcutta. Mm -hmm. So I worked with him to essentially raise money um, and as uh, you know, as it is, uh, as fate would have it, Microsoft was really willing and supportive in this process. Mm -hmm. And so we raised the money to set up computer labs in about five or six schools. And he was very helpful in terms of identifying a school, making sure that they pay for the maintenance, making sure that the resources are well, you know, well utilized. And I think that kind of opened up the possibility of saying, if I work with an MP, this is how much smoother processes will be. And this is what my own experience is. Right. Um, just two questions now. You went from um, college to grad school immediately. I did. Was that a good decision in hindsight? And second, uh, you took up a job at the World Bank instead of directly pursuing your entrepreneurship. In hindsight, do you think these two decisions made sense? Absolutely. So I think for me, it certainly made sense. Um, in my personal experience, I think going from undergrad to grad, there were certainly classes where it would have helped having more experience. But that's not to say that, you know, going from undergrad to grad, I didn't like benefit so much uh, in terms of getting to 
draw from the experiences of people who were much older than me and then you know the mistakes that they made they would share and i would know what to watch out for and what not to do yeah. so you almost live vicariously when you're younger to say okay well i've seen like five people say don't do this which means i probably shouldn't do it um so i think for me as an individual it certainly made sense and i think you know after the bank starting something hola plus you had a ton of internships I did. You did try out quite a few things. So even <laughs> though you went straight from college, what I noticed was that you had tried out vastly different things, risk, highly risky things as well. I did. I did. Yeah. So I often jokingly say, you know, I was a hippie when I was in college, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of truth to that, uh, in the sense that you know I did want to go out and work in um, high risk areas. So I did want to go and work in refugee camps, which is something I got to do. I wanted to work in a. Was desa- it in India or outside? So the refugee camps was outside India. Both of them were international experiences. So I worked in tsunami affected areas in Sri Lanka, um, and then I worked in refugee affected areas in northeast. Well, uh, the kind of excuse me india tibet india china that border mm-hmm. so it was um it was actually yeah both of those were really helpful experiences um when i was in undergrad i also had the opportunity to start up a non-profit kind of do social entrepreneurship work for unlike swaniti <laughs> well i mean having having a grew up in the US the part that's unlike swaniti is that it was very us for a uh, focus i see so but it gave me a taste of what it meant to Kind of Could you tell me a bit thing. more about it? Like what what was the thesis? Yeah, so um, I was always passionate about children's rights, um, and one of the things that was there was um, Winston Salem, which is where my college was. My undergraduate was Wake Forest University. So Winston Salem was essentially a, a college town where if you left Wake Forest University, it was not a well-off town. Mm-hmm. Um, so you did have parts of the town which had very high dropouts from high school. So what we realized was given Wake had a good number of students who wanted to volunteer and had all of this time to volunteer uh, they didn't always know how to do so. So what I tried to do was essentially simplify the process of you enroll in these three platforms and then you connect with where you want to volunteer and those people who don't have cars can we have the kids come into school and spend time and essentially have like role models from the college kids. who can then you know tutor them spend time with them mm. you know have creative activities and so that was essentially what the nonprofit was it was a simple idea yeah. um but it was a really good experience so you being a hippie plus you doing a bunch <laughs> of these internships yeah. high risk ones plus trying out your social enterprise i think set you up to school maybe that's why you got in to 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 the kennedy school Yeah it I I think it certainly helped me understand that this was something I wanted to do and I think I was able to convey that possibly to the admissions committee mm-hmm. uh half the times I joke and say you know that one lucky kid who just like they randomly put in the wrong pile got in I might be that person uh but I think <laughs> you know even the piles might be too close together so one of the things I think uh, that helped me in that process was just saying that I can establish I have a clear vision because I have these things I've done in the past. Yeah. And you know like it's a, I love the experimentation based approach because the only way you can truly find out whether you want to do something is to do it. Create Absolutely. micro micro experiments uh, which you did multiple times. We're going to discuss your application strategy in a later part. But about the second half of the question about the World Bank straight out of college instead of jumping into Swaniti? Yeah, so I think uh you know 
being at a larger institution really helped me understand systems mm. which i think now have helped me in swaniti as well so being able to say let's say the the smaller things let's say you know why are appraisals important right that's a very small thing but that's important to know in a larger institution to how do you set up a vision of your team um how do you go ahead and execute on that vision i think being a part of the world bank and a larger institution really helped me on that front had i not had that i would have had much more learning with swaniti mm-hmm. so certainly the world bank helped me do that and you know what also the world bank helped me do was understand how to deal with high level government officials right. and that's fate would have it i just kind of continued down that path mm-hmm. so that was just really valuable experience but you must really want to uh get into the world bank because it's not a job that comes easy right mm-hmm. it's a very competitive job mm-hmm. um how what how did you approach that so, so i would imagine it was a conscious strategy to get into the world bank or try to get into the world bank absolutely yeah so i think that was something which was there at the end when you said you know you earlier asked the transition time in between the the mm-hmm. first and the second year on employment i think you know kind of hitting a bit on that question it was something which was very conscious then i did want to go and work with a un or a world bank after i graduated um and not work on swaniti immediately and part of it was because i think you know i realized i needed experience and that's what i went and i communicated so it was a lot of conversations with people working at the world bank which helped mm-hmm. um which was saying look i realize that i want to do this in the longer term but for now i need to learn mm-hmm. and i think those conversations helped me understand what the bank does better Mm-hmm. and then also how do you get into the bank system and work and get the most out of when you are there mm-hmm. you know some people say that when you work in larger institutions you can leave as a more skeptical person or you can leave as a you know more as part of the tribe were you more of a skeptic or a believer or somewhere in between i think i'm somewhere in between i think you know like every institution it has its strengths and its weaknesses it's really large to not create a sizable impact but i think think that impact comes with expectations mm-hmm. um and so the bank in terms of you know what it does and what it stands for individually i know has huge scale uh but i think what the bank is also struggling with is in a competitive world you have to stay relevant and you have to stay there with a unique value addition yeah um and i think that's not just true of the bank that's true of everything that you and i do mm, absolutely um, yeah so i think that's where the bank being the large institution that it is is trying to figure it out you know we all live in an era of reinvention we are reinventing ourselves banks and institutions have to reinvent themselves um you know tell me many many of our community members really want to work get a feel of uh, such institutions both before their masters degree and sometimes after as well uh who should take who shouldn't consider this experience or who do you think would probably end up frustrated even if he or she gets this job so i think rather than kind of say who would be frustrated would i instead kind of do is flip the question on its head and say like you know if you're working for a bank understand what the institution is i think different people have different perceptions of what the bank is yeah uh, so i think a person who wants to go into the lending arm but ends up doing research might not be as content right because to them the impression of the bank is it's a research organization yeah so it's like larger institutions have multiple facets and it's really important that you understand what you're getting into right um and so i think someone anyone who wants to get into this this uh, you know whether it's the world bank or a larger institution should invest the time to understand what are, what are the different sectors what all do they do and where do i fit in best yeah yeah perfect 
Uh, you know, now this section, I want to cover more about like, you know, what the Masters or what the Kennedy School did for you. So what was it like getting in? How did you ex- feel when you got that acceptance letter? Oh, yeah. First, you're like, um, this was definitely not meant for me. And then eventually when you realize, well, too bad, I'm going anyway. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, uh, you know, it was it was very exciting. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I met my husband in graduate school. So... So he was also at Harvard at the same time? He was. He was at the business school. Uh, We graduated the same year. So it it is a particularly special place for me uh, for that reason as well. Um, Did you think you will get in when you applied? No, never. Because odds were stacked against you. are a young person applying with no full-time work experience. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you never think you're going to get in. And then when you do, you're just shocked. Uh, Yeah, it was a complete surprise. And uh, what was first day like at Harvard? So I, my best friend from undergrad once told me, you know, you're a big fish in a small pond. Now when you're going to go to Cambridge, you're going to be a small fish in a big pond. And <laughs> I think that's so true. I think it's it's incredibly humbling uh, in terms of the kind of people who go there, right? So one of my classmates was Ashley Judd, who's a movie star, and she's incredible. And so what do you do when you're sitting next to her, right? So I think it just puts... What do you do? I don't know. Just pretend like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think it, it just really makes you realize how much people have done. And I think the Kennedy School particularly is a place where very passionate people come in. Mm-hmm. And so they're very driven and that's inspiring to see. Mm-hmm. What is a passion? Who is a passionate person in your opinion? A passionate person in my opinion is someone who's very dedicated to executing on a clear vision in a stipulated period of time. I sound like a dictionary, but I'm just trying to think <laughs> of a lot of people who I've met. No, no basically, passion yeah. is sometimes can be hard to, because you get this advice many times in life, follow your passion. Yeah. But sometimes it's hard to figure out what that means. Yeah, and I think it, so a passion doesn't necessarily need to be like, you know, I want to make the world go green. It can be very well that, you know, I want to be able to finish graduate school with good grades. Um, you know, you have a very specific focus you have a stipulated time period within which you have to finish it and you execute on that i think that's essentially what passion is yeah you know i i think if i were to if just hearing on what you've said you were following your curiosity mm-hmm. following your curiosity enabled you to stumble upon things that you were passionate about mm-hmm. which you eventually made into your career do you think that's uh, one way to look at it Absolutely. I think that's a very fair way to look at it. Um, I was very curious and I think I continue to be curious about like how does development work? What is it that governments do? What is it that civil society does? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, I think, you know, and that's also helped me in my career in coming across people who just do super cool things. Right. Um, So I think being curious and just kind of reaching out and having talking to people has just always helped me. What was the coursework like for both years? Um, So the first year at the Kennedy School, you have, or at least back in 2008, you used to have required curriculum. Um, It was very economics-based. And the second year was much more flexible. Um, I was always kind of interested in more of the political economy stuff. So I got to take a super cool class by this guy called Steve Jarding, uh, called The Making of a Politician. And uh, it just taught you for like four months on how do you run for office. Dr. Jarding is pretty involved in India as well. I've as heard, you know. I've heard, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it was a good class. I mean, the, everything aside, judgment call aside on India, I think it was a really cool class that he had in Cambridge. Yeah. And this was in first year? Second year. Oh, so first year is all 
core courses, mostly economics. I always wonder why economics, though. So at the time I was at the Kennedy School, there was a huge push towards like evaluating development policies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of thinking was like, okay, you know, you're introducing policies, but how do you recognize what is right and what is not? And how do you course correct? And whether mm -hmm. it's governments or it's larger multilateral institutions, how do you do a randomized control trial and essentially measure? Um, and so the, the focus sub, uh, subsequently went to teaching students how do you measure and what is right and what mm -hmm. is wrong as a policy. Right. Right. Was it fairly mathematical as well, the first year? I would imagine it must be. It was. And I am terrible at math. So anytime they'd be like, oh, look at this number. It, you know, to me, it just seemed like it was very quant heavy. So how did you train yourself to manage? Stuck to as many friends. I don't think I was very good at managing it. So I'm not the best person to ask on that. But uh, to be fair, though, the Kennedy School itself does provide you a lot of opportunities. So there, there are um, like RAs, research, uh, research assistants who are there, teaching assistants who are there, uh, TAs. TAs used to have office hours all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, classes also had study groups that used to be formed. And so you have a lot of support even if you're not quantitative. Yeah. You know, the reason I asked you this question was because there have been a lot of studies. There It's been written out that sometimes policy courses have a bit too much economics. Mm -hmm. They could do with a little more sociology, a little more psychology, mm -hmm. because you don't want policy people to look at problems all from, say, the lens of economics. Sure. So sure. Th that's the rationale. I, and I think that's why the second year gives you a little more flexibility to branch out. Absolutely. But, you know, I think, to be fair, if you asked me, then I think majority of the class would almost be too comfortable not having much economics. Mm -hmm. So pushing us to think quantitatively, uh, I'd say 10 years, 11 years down the line is actually helping me now. Is it? How, uh, how so? It is because I think, you know, otherwise you kind of continue to do something without measuring or understanding where you need to course correct. It's not that I'm using RCTs, but it is that I'm realizing measurement. Could you tell what RCTs Sorry, are? Sorry, yeah. randomized control trials. Yeah. Um, and so randomized control trials being a methodology of making that measurement, that's not something I'm using right now, but I am mindful that I need to measure. Mm -hmm. And what was second year like? Um, the fun class that you took and others, <laughs> yeah. Second year was good because I also took another class on public speaking. So as you could see, I was very quant heavy. And I know you have the <laughs> flexibility to take uh, classes across the river. I uh, did. Yeah. yeah, I took a, a few classes across the river. I took a, like a great business leaders class as well across the river. So um, it was really good. Is that how you met your uh, husband at the time? Yeah. So no, actually, I met my husband in Delhi. So oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like winter break. Yeah. Okay, lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it was second year also had given the flexibility a lot of classmates also enroll in classes in Harvard Law School or Harvard Business School. Mm. I uh, selected a ton of classes at the business school. Uh, again, Why? I think uh, a few, uh, a bit of it was because a few of what they were offering was very interesting. So the great business leaders class appealed to me because I wanted to actually learn about leadership. Um, there was another one on corporate social responsibility. Um, and part of that was because I was a fellow during my tenure at the Kennedy School, a uh, business and government fellow. And there was the course on corporate social responsibility fit in really well with what I was doing on my thesis. So is this a scholarship as well? This yeah. government? Okay. Yeah. So the, the back in again, back in 2008 to 2010, there used to be a scholarship called the Business and Government Center for, uh, Fellowship. And so you were essentially attached to the center and you were doing research on business and government. I see. And this class that you mentioned, great, great leaders, um, did that also cover leaders from the past, historical figures? 
Yeah, so I think the most historical figure we had was Jamshedji Tata uh, within the Indian context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's oh, was it a class centered around the Indian ethos? No, so it was uh, international leaders, uh, international business leaders. So it I didn't see. matter. So I think we had uh, Tata from India, and then we had another African leader from Nigeria for an oil company, mm-hmm. and then the rest of them were Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was just fascinating to kind of study the cases of what makes a great leader. What, what are do the you characters? think makes a great leader? What do you th- <laughs> like major reflections from that class? It's been a while now. It's been almost ten years. But uh, ten years have given you like uh, insight into different leaders you are one and you've seen a bunch of leaders in school outside school at swaniti so i think the the quality that defines a leader is his or her ability to adapt to times and be able to foresee what is coming mm-hmm. so i think you need a practicality and groundedness groundedness of today with a bit of clairvoyance right uh i think that's what essentially would make a good leader a great leader um if i were to kind of define great leader by they're bringing value to society whether that's financial whether that's you know how many people you employ bottom line um and some of the great leaders now with that baseline i think great leaders can have differing qualities in how they interact to people you have steve jobs who you know has been known to be a harsher manager and then you have more kinder managers so I think you know the kind of management style you have versus the kind of leader you have is different and I think the leader is defined by the vision and the manager is defined by their interaction with their peers. Yeah. It's really well said. And I loved what you said about adaptability. These days people have started measuring measuring IQ, EQ and also AQ. Yeah. Adaptability quotient. Yeah. Um yeah and any like uh, outside work outside studies what was living in Cambridge really like? Oh it was lovely. I would move back there in a heartbeat. Uh it was so beautiful. Um I lived in in uh, Peabody Terrace which was the the tall apartment buildings. Um life in Cambridge is just it's very rich. Um because you're surrounded by essentially intellectually curious people and there are just so many events that take place in any given day. Uh if anything you have the fear of missed opportunity when you're there. Almost real. <laughs> Absolutely because you have these incredible speakers and you know there was no day where you didn't see someone with like an earpiece and like a black suit and you'd be like hmm I wonder which VIP is in the building today <laughs> so like it was a super cool place to be for like a, a 21 year old but um the the lifestyle was also really <coughs> good um Boston gets really cold um yeah and I can't underestimate like understate how much that is because you couldn't talk on the phone in the winters because you're face would just freeze <laughs> so it was just very cold um but it was i still enjoyed it a lot yeah um you know um and you know any advice for people who are looking to apply right now or any advice to applicants so i'd certainly say that you know dig deep into what you put forward as your values uh think long and hard as to why you want to do this even before you go into the application process because a lot of that does end up coming out um in when you convey your own story and your narrative so i'd say just take like you know a week to take a pause and say why do i want to do this why do i want to do this now and what will i take away from this which is exactly what the application questions are uh but i think taking a pause and thinking about it rather than just taking pen to paper and starting to write it out um is just very helpful so you you did take a week or two out to just think about the process 
as an undergraduate student at as that yeah absolutely i mean all of those days in refugee camps when you have no electricity what are you going to do yeah. <laughs> but no jokes aside uh it really yeah i think uh in between my junior and senior year uh in terms of why i wanted to do this um public policy kind of was a natural selection for me because i was interested in government i was interested in governance and development um and so that to me was a lot easier cuz i always knew that was the direction i was going to end up in right and in terms of when you started writing essays uh, reaching out to referees did you take some help from friends or did you write out a first draft and then share it around what was your application strategy like yeah so application strategy was i actually shared it with like i think two of my close friends and then with a few professors okay um, your so, essays yes your my essays yes. and you wrote them in one go or in multiple iterations so it took me a few iterations uh, but by nature i end up doing a few iterations uh, before i end up kind of finalizing it one of the things that helped me was kind of drawing out an outline Mm-hmm. So even before writing an essay just saying what my thesis is what are my supporting points and then what is my closing argument mm-hmm. um and generally that outline just kind of helped me then put down articulately what I wanted to mm. and uh, in terms of referees did you sub- like did you discuss the story your story with them or they already knew you so they didn't have they didn't need more context yeah so a lot of them actually asked for the essay when i was applying Mm-hmm. Um, so they so that they had context of what i was already kind of listing out and i think at that point they asked for your strengths and weakness maybe mm-hmm. something of the sort I think they in ask. Ob- obliquely they always ask yeah. that, right so so i think they just wanted to highlight that um and i didn't ask all of my like pr- only my professors so i kind of mixed up the batch a little bit so i asked like a mentor i asked a professor i asked a peer like it was kind of mix and match a little bit mm-hmm. and because i had a social enterprise i had a lot of networks in the community that i could reach out to as well mm. um so yeah kind of a mixed batch of people i i wanted to ask oh that's very interesting so moving on um so you started 27 years back right i did where is swaniti today in terms of numbers qualitative quantitative impact sure so um right now we are present across 17 indian states uh we have about 142 or 43 uh employees right now on our payroll um and we are targeting to reach about 5 million dollars in revenue this year Oh, that's excellent. Um, so yeah, so we are growing. Um, we are continuing to work with state governments. We are continuing to work with parliamentarians. Our three focus sectors are health, social safety nets, and livelihood. Mm-hmm. Five million dollars, terrific! By by the end of two thousand nineteen, and how's the growth rate been like for the past uh, few years? So in the last few years, and when we really jumped. So in the last three four years was when we really like. doubled every year or close to doubled um in terms of our growth and then after that was when um you know when we which is when we started to kind of stabilize and now i think we kind of want to continue the growth which we have seen in the last few years in the upcoming few years mm-hmm. um you know i think in terms of the growth that we've seen and and a big piece of it is in the last few years we've also kind of understood our model a lot better mm-hmm. and have had an opportunity to reflect operationally on what's worked um and i think that started to reflect a lot in our conversations right and uh, did swaniti start out as a non-profit or a social enterprise 
So we actually started out as a non-profit. And, uh, we what is the difference actually between a non-profit and a social enterprise? Sure. So essentially, a social enterprise can also be a non-profit. Um, however, a for-profit can also be a social enterprise. So the social enterprise is like the big overarching piece and then it can be a non-profit or a for-profit. In the case of Swaniti, uh, the reason we call it a social enterprise is part of it is not for-profit and then part of it is for-profit. Um, and so what we realized in due course was as we were working with government that the government can directly be clients and currently our governments are our clients in certain situations. And in that case, it made it easier to have uh, a for-profit entity that could bid. I see. And uh, the bidding process has clearly worked out well for you. You've closed to five million. But when did you decide to branch out from a non-profit to a social enterprise? So I think a few And years. was there one event that led to it or you just saw that uh, it was inhibiting your growth being a non-profit so social enterprise a logical next step Sure so I think you know one of the big things which we noticed was actually our partners would ask us this and our partners kind of and this is why like good partners are so valuable for someone like us is they kind of probed us to say if what you're doing is so valuable then why don't governments pay for the, the service or the support mm -hmm. and what they raised was very valuable and what we started mulling was well that's actually true. If what we're doing is unique, then why not? And so what we started thinking a few years ago was let's go ahead and create a for-profit entity, uh, which would actually kind of be the kind of generate the revenue, which we can then put back in the company and make sure it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. So the decision was kind of this constant conversation with partners where they'd say, you know, it makes sense for a proof of concept to be supported by a foundation. But in the longer term, the government has to adopt things. And what that has subsequently pushed us to do is also understand what are the good practices that governments want to adopt and why. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's like, you know, uh, the, the kind of big black hole of why do governments take in certain programs and not others. And that's kind of helped us effectively analyze what makes the government more interested in certain things and not. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, working with different uh, layers of the government, the bureaucracy, the, uh, the, uh, the politicians, uh, different multilaterals, non-profits. How is there a way or a, an insight that you've stumbled upon which, which relates to trust? How have you managed to build trust with multiple different kinds of organizations and done it at scale? So, you know, I, I really like this question of trust, actually. Um, I think... Uh, in not just in government, I think in the Indian context, you have to like you walk into a room without trust and you have to build it, which is very different from an American context where you walk into a room and you have trust until you break it. Uh, and so what was kind of interesting to me as someone who started working in India about seven years ago was when you'd walk into a room, the first thing they'd say is, why do you want to do this? What What is it that you're bringing to the table? What is your interest? And it would take a really long time to convince someone that you were doing this for social good. So you'd go to like a block level officer and you'd say, I want to help you improve your school. And they would say, but why do you want to do that? And so you'd say to improve the school. And then he'd say, but why do you want to do that? And so what you realize is fundamentally with the trust piece of it, that it doesn't, doesn't exist until and unless you invest the time to show that you meant what you, what you said. And I think the biggest thing that it took was kind of these conversations and these meetings and the fact that it wasn't just me, but it was a team of people who was hitting out at multiple partners and stakeholders in different parts of the government sharing the same thing. 
um, what I think also helped us is we as a as a policy organization came in at a time where a lot of young people kind of came in from that same perspective of wanting to strengthen government. Mm-hmm. And if you notice in the last seven years, it's not just Swaniti, it's government fellowship programs. It's, you know, working with MPs and chief ministers offices. It's OSDs who've come in. It's advisors to government who've come in. So the ecosystem in policy is changing at large where that conversation of why have you come in and now you have to create, you know, invest 20 years to create trust has dramatically gone down. Right. And that churn has helped us as well. Yeah. Do you think trust is a function of time? I think trust, one component is time. I think there are multiple variables. The other component is action. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. When we go into any community and we try to do a survey, they'll say, why should I give you data when I just gave someone data six months back and they mm. didn't do anything with it? Right. And I think that's it's a, a very, valid question. It's a very fair question. And the person that doesn't trust you, not because he or she doesn't know you, but because they've gone through this exercise to no return. So trust, another variable which I could think simply where trust comes in is action. Is if you say, look, if you give me this information, I will work with the administrator and I promise you that in next year you'll see something in the next six months or three months, whatever it is. And I think one factor of trust or distrust in this case is the fact that there's been a lot of conversations, but compared to the conversations, there has been relatively limited work in some parts. And I think that is what potentially can fuel these conversations. I see. Um, you know, looking back, reflecting on 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 Swaniti, I'm sure there have been multiple challenging moments. Were there some when the going was particularly hard and you almost felt like giving up? Oh, so many times. Uh, <laughs> I think, especially when you're an entrepreneur, it's not just you who does it, it's also your partner. So for me, there was a lot of like, I turned to my husband and say, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he just say, you know, uh, perseverance. So his favorite ne- word was doggedness. So he's mm-hmm. like, just stay at it. Grit. just stay Absolutely. And so um, I think there were, especially in the initial years, you know, when you're learning everything afresh. Uh, so for me, fundraising was and continues to be one of the hardest things that I do. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the fact that, and it was much harder then. And I think, you know, coming into a room and saying, how do I raise resources? Who do I raise this from are difficult questions. And so when I would kind of hit a wall right at the beginning, like I'd go try to raise money from someone and they'd say, no, I don't want to, you know, fund this project. Rather than think of it, oh, this was like a no for Swaniti. I used to take it very personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that kind of emotional toll being turned down several times in a year and as an entrepreneur you are going to be turned several da- ta- uh, times um, the piece is that you, it starts to affect you emotionally and that's what happened to me um, except you stay persistent just keep at it and eventually it works out yeah so um, is that an ex- or early on or how about later when you transition and created uh, a revenue channel for yourself so that I think your dependence in a way reduced on donors, right? It did, Because yeah. you were able to create enough revenue. Then what kind of challenges did you face as a person or an as organization? Then the hiring challenges come. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you wait for one thing and then the other thing comes. So first you're like, oh, let the money come. I'll get good talent. And then the resources come and then you're like, oh, now the person who I'll offer the job to will say no to me. Mm-hmm. The good thing is by that point, you've become so kind of, you know, methodical and 
if I may use the word, unemotional about the process, that you kind of move on. You yeah. learn how to move on. Uh, but I think right now that is something which we're looking at is how do you attract the best talent and retain the best talent? Yeah. Um, and that's something which is, which is hard. And one of the things that my husband often says is if there's one thing you can learn in business and in life is how to identify the right talent and then recruit them. Yeah. And you've managed to get and retain and nurture top talent. I know so many community members, network capital folks who work at Swaniti, who hire from Swaniti, who from Swaniti gone on to do really great things. It has in a way become a talent nurturing factory as well. Maybe factory is not the right word, but like in the social sector, getting top talent has always been a challenge and Swaniti doesn't seem to suffer from it as much. So what's the secret? How do you attract them? How do you nurture them? Um, and how do you make them emerge closer to their dreams? Sure. So first of all, network capital is our go-to place when we have to post things. <laughs> so the, the admiration is absolutely mutual. Uh, I think, you know, when it comes to what kind of people we've had and, and uh, who we've been able to recruit, uh, I'm incredibly proud of everyone that I've worked with. I cannot name one person who I'm not very happy to have worked with. Uh, I think Really? Absolutely. Um, so I th there have been very few bad hires? Absolutely. I'm very proud. Like That's with excellent. A, with a very strong voice, I can say I'm very proud. And, you know, anyone who, who reached... So one of the things I learned from the Kennedy School and that made me kind of want to emulate this is when you when you graduate from the Kennedy School, very rarely will you have that culture where you reach out to someone else who's also a Kennedy alum and you won't hear back from them and they won't support you in some way or another. Mm -hmm. um, and I really valued that and I wanted to kind of bring that into Swaniti. Um, and I think, you know, we've been very lucky where people who have been equally committed to governance and policy have come in. And we've effectively created this community where we support each other, whether you're in Swaniti or outside. And we've also been very lucky that in, like I was mentioning in the last seven, 10 years, there has been this strong interest of people to come in and work with governments and support mm -hmm. governments and grow institutions. And so we've been recipient of that interest and that talent. And so we've been very well placed in terms of where we are in time, where that churn is coming in. Um, and I think, you know, once we got a good first few cohorts of people who went through the program, then it was a ripple effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I have a theory of why people in the past few years have become interested in working in the policy. But what's your take? You know this space more intimately. I think there is certainly a set of inspirational and strong leaders um, inspirational because I do think that there's a lot of positive things that are happening strong because regardless of your judgment call that evokes an emotion for you to work for the nation at large so I think that is something which has really helped people come into policy and I think the government has also opened up mm -hmm. um, the government consciously wanting to bring in an officer on special duty as a lateral hire was not something that was common even 30 years ago as it is today, as much as it is today. So I think the government has wanted to open up and I think the leadership that has been there has inspired faith in people wanting to join the sector. But what's your theory? Um, I think it's a combination of uh, people wanting to make a difference or at least test out whether things change or not. Instead of thinking about, oh, let somebody else change the policy, let's try it out for some time. And I think it also helps them build the skills and uh, networks to get to the level they want. You'll see a lot of people who do meaningful work in public policy end up doing 
very well for themselves professionally as well, even if they don't choose to remain in the policy or development sector for the long term. Sure. And I think it's a decently positive thing. Sure. People in like people don't mind when a banker becomes a consultant or a tech person becomes a, a marketing person. Why should people mind when people from a social sector go to another sector or vice versa? Absolutely. One thing I feel that we need to get better at, I think people from the social sector should be that work. It prepares you for a lot, social sector, policy sector. I feel the business space could do a bit more. I think people who do this job can do more than only CSR, although that's a perfectly worthy job. Absolutely. I feel that the same skills set you up for success on a lot larger, broader scale. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what you're saying is really interesting, actually. So one of the things that is they're looking at was, you know, Obama, President Obama is supposed to be like one of the rock star uh, presidents because when he came in, he used to use video a lot more. So Kennedy became like one of the rock star presidents because at that point in time, TV was just introduced and then Obama picked up social media mm. a lot. And so what I'm wondering is what you're saying is really interesting in terms of, you know, people saying, segueing from one sector to another. Uh, because that makes sense and there's that, that value and people want to experiment. And I think a lot of that is also because if you look at the churn right now, millennials are all about social change. Mm -hmm. uh, there is that ecosystem right now where even social media is promoting a lot of social change. Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the, the ecosystem, the environment at large is encouraging people to think beyond, I've made money, but that's not enough. Uh, and I think what you're saying with business is really interesting because even the CSR component, uh, what the government is now saying, 2% CSR, is making people compelled to think about you making money is not going to be enough. Think about society at large. Yeah, 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 oh, absolutely. Before I move on to the next section, I just want to ask, in the past seven years, in fact, you've been in space for longer than seven, seven plus two plus four, mm -hmm. maybe even earlier. Have you changed your mind about something that you strongly believed in? Oh, so much, so much. Uh, so first of all, I think, uh, you know, I used to be, I actually came out of, because of a lot of work that I did, I was, I used to super be like about grassroots, about like little things. It's, it's about like, you know, how do you bring change from the bottom up? Um, and so I think in the last seven years, what it's exposed me a lot to is how do you bring change from top down? Or actually, you know, the last few years have taught me both top down as well as realizing that it's neither bottom up nor top down. It has to be a combination of both. So I think, you know, how do you bring about change? Who are the stakeholders? How do you deal? I think in my space, there's certainly been a huge kind of churn and life goes full circle. You know, I was a fellow for business and government. I started to realize you don't survive in, in any ecosystem only with government and only with business. You need stakeholders, you need people to kind of work together. Um, so I think, you know, your 20s are where you kind of get to experiment and play around with a lot of things. And for me, at least in my case, your 30s are when you're starting to realize hmm, some things might work better than others. You still question, you never stop questioning, but you start to notice patterns. Yeah, perfect. What are you reading right now? I'm reading Adam Grant's Originals. What's that book about? So the original tries to actually see um, what makes businesses, uh, some businesses succeed. Um, it kind of looks at different studies. So the author essentially says, this is his argument. Uh, he says he had an opportunity to invest in a, in a glass company called Warby Parker, I think. Yeah. And he let go of the opportunity because everything he saw about the founders and about the models seemed completely wrong to him. And as I think he was a professor at the time, it just intuitively didn't fit. 
and then Warby Parker being having as much uh, net worth as it does today. Uh, valuation, excuse me. Uh, he's kind of kicking himself. And this whole book is, is an examination of what you expect, how you expect certain businesses to survive and grow and certain characteristics you look for and how, in fact, they're not always entirely right. In fact, several of them are wrong. Yeah, Adam is still a professor. And in fact, have you read Give and Take? I haven't. It's excellent. Uh, yeah. Like the premise of network capital is a lot of what that book says, that givers have a, uh -huh. an intrinsic value. And I think uh -huh. if we give at scale, okay. as long as we take care of ourselves, the world will be better off. We just pivoted to careers. People like you have pivoted to social impact and policy. But uh, are you somebody who gifts books a lot? I do. I'm I'm a little mindful as to what books I gift. So I, I wanted to know which books have you or do you gift a fair bit? Um, I'm a huge biography person. Mm -hmm. So anything that's like a, a quite a good biography. So there, there was a while back, there was a very good biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Anything written by Walter Isaacson, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, can't remember. Have you read the all, all the series, Da Vinci? I haven't, actually. I've read a few. Um, I did read the Da Vinci one. I read Steve Jobs, which is when I actually got introduced to him. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think there was one on Benjamin Franklin as well, which I read a while back. Yeah, yeah. and um, Benjamin Franklin's uh, autobiography is quite oh, absolutely. scintillating. Absolutely. Was so you give, you, you're a biography person, autobiography person. I am. I am. Uh, I'm a biography person. And then sometimes I look at like Indian history books, which are pretty solid. So mm -hmm. like anything by Ramchandra Guho is yeah. automatic. It's such a delight. Absolutely. Um, how, so what is work-life balance or work-life harmony to a venture capital husband and an entrepreneur <laughs> uh, spouse, wife? Uh, it's pretty good, actually. So I think... Uh, well, depends. We're both dying to go on vacation right now. So, have you been to a vacation in the near in the past few months? Yeah. If you define vacation as more than four days, then no. No, micro vacations are good. I'm a big exactly. believer in micro vacations. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you you kind of get out, but then you get really sad on your fifth day that it's over uh, in the blink of an eye. But um, yeah, so I think. Uh, we usually try to do the thing in the last two, three years. I think we've tried to take a Friday off and a Monday off. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of become a vacation. But what we have tried to do in terms of work-life balance is make sure we are each other's priority. Uh, make sure and, and mindfully so make sure we spend time with each other. Um, even if it is a few hours a day, uh, not talk about work, not talk about anything stressful. Um, you know, either have a meal and, and have a conversation about, let's say, current affairs. Which, to be honest, can sometimes be stressful, but it's okay. <laughs> Especially these days. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, you know, we, we kind of talk about the lighter stuff, maybe share a story or two. And so we kind of make an effort to park everything that's uh, work-related outside the door and then come in and... As a person, are you somebody who takes on too much, too little? How do you prioritize things? Um, I think I have those moments. So I do take on as much as I can. And then I tend to back down when I can't take on anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but there are oftentimes gaps when I feel like something is missing. Um, so one of the things I do is I write. Um, and so the reason I write is because there are times where I feel like what I'm doing with work is not feeding my intellectual curiosity. Um, and so I'm just kind of doing more of the copy paste, kind of going ahead and doing what I do in my routine every day. And that might be stressful depending on the outcome, but it's not adding value to my knowledge base. So at that point in time, I do like to kind of have a goal of, let's say, write three op-eds or go ahead. And like a few years ago, I was like, I want to write a book. Um, and I'm working on the second book. And it's because a few months ago, I was just like, 
I'm not learning anything uh, beyond what my work is. Um, so I kind of wanted to take that up because it gives me an opportunity. It forces me essentially to do research and read and stick to a timeline. And are you somebody who enjoys writing? I do. I think writing makes me kind of take a sit, uh, step back and reflect on everything that I've done. Uh, and you tend to write about things that you know very well or are working in. So what advice do you have to people who want to follow suit, who want to write about whatever they're doing and do it well, maybe write a book one day? Absolutely. So I think, you know, you just have to kind of be mindful of what you're observing. Um, the pro the pro uh, problem with us is that we have information overload. We're constantly on our screens. We're constantly kind of doing things. We're constantly multitasking. Um, and that is problematic when it comes to kind of how much you're taking in and how much you're processing. So one of the things that I, I kind of love doing is like today we were driving in um, and there was this huge forest right next door. And uh, I loved kind of just putting down my phone and looking at the forest. And, and I, not taking a selfie? And not taking a selfie. To be fair, I think I belong to the generation that doesn't quite understand selfies. <laughs> so, that's, so I'm assuming you don't have a Snapchat account. I don't know what Snapchat is. Okay. I'm still trying to figure that out. Why would you have a chat if it disappears in 30 minutes? It <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. But, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, just putting down any device that you have and taking a moment to reflect. Yeah. Um, and I think anyone who kind of wants to capture what they are doing needs to continue doing what they're doing, but have time to kind of just process. Yeah, I call it digital detox. Ah. So, you know, since you're a lover of uh, instant media so much, so let me end <laughs> this podcast with a rapid fire Snapchat round. Oh, okay. <laughs> are you good at saying no? No. What's the one thing that you wish you were better at? Everything. Do you think you will be doing what you're doing forever? No. Uh, what's the one thing that you believe in that others mostly disagree with you on? Yetis. Really? What's yeah. your theory there? I think they're there. We, can't, <laughs> we cannot possibly know all the species on this planet. Who's your favorite writer? Charles Duhigg. What kind of music do you enjoy? Classical. What's the question that you wish people asked more? I wish people asked less questions. Um, how do you, when did you give the harshest feedback you've ever given to anybody and did that person take it well? I think I've given a lot of very harsh feedback to, say, my spouse. Um, and I'd say possibly my parents from time to time. And they have actually been very positive. And flip, flipping the question, when have you received harsh feedback and how have you responded to it? Again, I think my spouse and my parents. Um, and I sucked at it, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think I was very good at it. But I think they came from a good place. And what they said, most of the times what they say is valid. So Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. This has been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me.